A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. To the mouth of manliness with me, Nick Noyes, as ever. Um, hope you're all, all uh, coping all right in this crappy time of lockdown number two. Um, I have a wonderful guest today, uh, Matt Stocks. Uh, Matt Stocks is a very successful podcaster, uh, a DJ, and a writer. What else are you, Matt? What else am I? A presenter, TV, radio. Um, yeah, a jack of many trades, master of some. <laughs> Just a full-time freelance hustler, really. I mean, this year, more so than most, has been obviously tricky. Um, but I've always found working in my line of work that the more strings you have to your bow and the more adaptable you are, the more likely you are to survive in this game and indeed in life. So, um, yeah, I've always been somebody who multi, multitasks, multi-roles. But I'd say my, my biggest passions are writing and DJing and interviewing. Yeah, so, like, you've interviewed... Uh, so, those who don't know Matt, Matt, um, you do a lot of stuff around kind of Kerrang! magazine, like the kind of metal and rock world, don't you? Which is... yeah. Totally up my street. Um, that, that's that's kind of how it began. Uh, and then, you know, as time goes by, you just find yourself, you're in that world, you're that guy. Um, but yeah, I used to present on Kerrang! Radio. I used to host on Scuzz TV. And I've written for like Classic Rock and Metal Hammer and, and Kerrang! and all those mags over the years. So that's kind of where I guess my, my contact pool is strongest. Yeah. But with my show, I do try and get on people from outside of that world as well. So actors and comedians and whoever I can get access to, really. But for me, the fascination is just with creatives. You know, it doesn't really matter what you do or what kind of a, a lane you're in. As long as you've got stuff to say and you've had an interesting life, then that's that's my dream guest. Yeah, I mean, it's the same for me, really. Um, like, I don't specifically have well-known people on. I'll have you know all sorts of different people on because it's just yeah if you've got an interesting story to tell that's that's the interesting thing because life's pretty interesting you know when it's not boring well i thought life is more interesting than fiction a lot of the time and and when you get on these people perhaps that are a little bit lesser known sometimes they reveal the stories of their lives and some of my favorite episodes have been with the lesser known guests 
and you learn about the experiences that they've had, the journey that they've been on, and, and you're kind of blown away by these stories, which, you know, you couldn't even begin to conjure up in your head, even with the greatest imagination. And sometimes I've found life really is more insane than any fictitious work you could come up with. It's what well, this year, look at this year as a great example of that. Yeah, the fucking perfect. lockdown pandemic of 2020. Nobody saw that coming. No. <laughs> so I um, certainly didn't. So you got a book coming out very soon. That's right, isn't it? Is it out this month? No, next yeah, month? it comes out December 15th is the official release date. It might be with people before then um, if they've already pre-ordered. If they haven't yet pre-ordered, it might be a little bit later than that. Obviously, it's hard to predict at the moment with shipping time, it being Christmas, it being COVID. We're in a bit of an uncertain time. But yeah, the release date is December 15th. It's been my saving grace, really, this year, like working on it all through lockdown, saved my sanity completely. Uh, it gave me something very positive and productive to focus on at a time when there wasn't a lot of other good things going on in my life or indeed in the world at large. So it's, it's really been a beautiful thing that's, that's saved me from the brink this year. And I'm really pleased with, with how it's come out. And now I'm just really excited. It's like when you're on the cusp of something like this, it's just waiting now until it's in the public domain and people are picking it up and reading it. And obviously you've had a little advanced look and I just can't wait to, to gauge people's reactions and hear their response. You know, it's well exciting. And I hope that those responses are, are positive, <laughs> but we'll I see. Think they will be. I, I like. I think um, I, I I read quite I've read quite a few books in that kind of vein. You know, like when you ask a question and then you it's answered by like different people. You know, and all all your ones are quite well known, aren't they? Um, but some not so well known. Um, and I think it gives a really good insight, like. Some of that insight I've, I've had from doing the podcast, like actually having a conversation with people who are well known, um, and you feel quite privileged to be privy to that. And I think you get that sense from your book. You know, you feel like it feels like you're kind of in the room with them a little bit. It feels quite intimate, um, which I think really is a result. That's amazing that you did that. Um, and yeah, I did get to have a look at it, and I really liked it. I'm, and I'm going to buy it. Because I, I like those. Oh, thanks, man. Anyway, yeah, I really liked it. Um, I tell you, well, there was a few things that jumped out at me. Um, was we, I think we both got into podcasting in the same way through uh, Mark Maron. Yeah, I mean, for me, he is the gold standard. He's the benchmark. He is the, the godfather in many ways. Uh, I guess people often tend to be either Team Maron or Team Rogan, don't they? I've found, obviously, you can, of course, be into both, but... I do find most people are either really into one or the other. And for me, as somebody who's more interested in cinema and music and the arts than perhaps some of the more sport-orientated, yeah. conspiracy theory-orientated, whack job, like, you know, Joe Rogan has a specific demographic, I think, yeah. uh, which is obviously broad, but I think he kind of, he touches on different bass notes to Marin. Marin, for me, is the more sort of sensitive, artistic guy uh, that speaks to artists about art, creativity, life, obviously depression, addiction, um, you know, heavy, delicate subjects. And he deals with it in such a humane way. And that was a huge influence for me on my approach to interviewing. I mean, I've always had a fairly kind of light hand 
when it comes to talking to people. I've always prided myself on that. But when I heard his style, it just really set me off on the trajectory that I've been on for the last four years of really trying to uncover in the nicest way possible, not in a sly way, but trying to connect with the guest in such a way that you expose their soul. If you, yeah, if you can have such a lofty, a lofty goal. You know, like it, they'll be having a conversation and then he'll just be like, so what was your dad like? And you know, like straight away, take someone back to their parents, like you do in your book, like that bit where you really kind of take people back to what's happened with you, like something happened, you know, people's parents split up or they had a difficult childhood and then that some way kind of predicts or leads them into their future as a result of. And, uh, yeah, I think we're all products of our upbringing, whether or not we know it or like it. We're all inspired by and affected by our experiences as, as young people. I mean, you can't not be, right? Because right. that's, that's when you're formulating your views on the world around you and your relationships with other people and, and everything. And everything is learned, isn't it? You can obviously transcend those conditions and situations and you can evolve and grow past them, but they're there. And they'll always be there, I think, for better or worse. It's funny because, like, I've suffered with mental health problems all my life. And, um, you know, there has been periods when I thought, well, it's a chemical thing and there's some genetics in there. Um, but I think, like, the larger part is kind of environment. And environment will be, like, your family around you that kind of steer you in that direction and impact on you when you're really young. And I think, like, what Marin does is, like, he'll be honest and he'll say those kind of things and then people respond, you know, because they feel comfortable because he, he will bear his soul, which is basically what I do. I, like, I, I say it all. Yeah. You know, I don't care. So Well, we'll get on then, man, because that's exactly my approach and my attitude towards it. And, and not everybody's comfortable with that, and that's fine. Um, but I am. And, and so when I speak to people on my show and indeed when I guest on other people's shows, there's no conversation that's off limits for me. Yeah. Um, and I think the more we talk about these things, because I grew up in a time as, as you would have done when there was not even stigma, but just you couldn't talk about mental health without taking the piss out of it. And there was no sympathy. There was no empathy. There was no understanding. It was just if you were crazy, you were the person that people pointed at and laughed at, or you just didn't say anything at all and you completely suppressed it and you had to keep it a dark secret and to admit it would be shameful. And we're in a better time now, of course, but there's always this, as you say, as you said a minute ago, with the chemical stuff and the imbalance that's physical, it doesn't matter how often and, and long you talk about it, it's not going to solve your problems ultimately because they're just in you. And, and that's really the great tragedy of mental health is you can take medication, you can go to therapy, but I don't think there's a cure for it. You just have to learn to live with it and negate those waters in the best way that you can. And talking about it does help, but it's certainly not a cure because I really don't think there is one. If you've got it, it's like a curse for life, but it can also be a blessing, I've found as well. Yeah, I, I think yeah, um, I agree that there, there isn't a cure. Um... It, it depends, yeah, it depends how bad it is. Some people, you know, you take tablets, it gets you through that busy, that horrible period and you move on. But that's because you're responding to a period. If you've got it, then the best you can do is manage. 
you know, you can manage really well, like I do sometimes, and then other times I'm not managing at all. Um, and yeah, as you say, it is, it's just managing. And like you take a bit of everything from everywhere you can to try and be better. But um, no, no, it's not easy. So have you got the curse then? Well, it's in my family and I've spent my whole life, you know, sort of walking that line of do I, don't I? Mm. Um, so my great grandma is the first person that I know of who really had it and she hung herself oh. when she was in, she was in her late twenties, I believe. Right. And my, my granddad, when he was five, walked into the, the barn on the farm that I lived in and saw her hanging there and, and found her dead. Um, his sister had it really, really bad. Um, my granddad was a very strong, silent type, and I think he just went down the pub and kind of, he drank his demons away. Yeah. His sister, um, my great aunt, had bipolar disorder or manic depression, as they would have called it then. And she was, you know, really, really unwell for the majority of her life. My mum, so my, this is why I think it's a combination of chemicals and genetics and circumstances, because my mum was well her whole life up until she was in her mid to late 20s. I was the first born of, of our family. And then after me, I had a sister called Julia, who was born when I was around three. And she died after about a month. She was born with an illness and, and, and she died. And, and after that, bang, that's what set it off in my mum. Yeah. And she was nev never the same after that. And I grew up with my mum basically in and out of institutions for months on end. And, mm -hmm. you know, her bipolar psychotic episodes were so extreme. You know, she would go from the depths of despair and deep, dark depression to absolute insane manic highs where she'd go disappearing for days on end. You didn't know whether she was dead or alive. So there's certainly like a strong yeah. bipolar disorder running throughout my family. So it's in there, um, and I do have my struggles. I've managed to not be institutionalized yet, yeah. um, touch wood, but I'm certainly no stranger to the black dog. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm not surprised. Fucking hell, that's a pretty heavy old... <laughs> yeah, sorry, I just dropped all that on you. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, I... But yeah, that's, that's kind of my story and my background. And um, yeah, in my adult life, I've struggled more as I've gotten older, to be honest. I think what I've found the hardest for me is, you know, being in the line of work that I'm in, which I love and find so rewarding and it brings me so much joy and it allows me to connect with these sensitive artistic people. And I, I learn so much from them and it, it fulfills my life in such a way that nothing else ever has. And I talk about a lot of this stuff in the book. But what it does do, or rather what it has done for me, perhaps with certain lifestyle or career choices that I've made, is it makes it quite hard to live a quote-unquote normal life with a partner and to be settled. And so, you know, I've had to sacrifice. There's been sacrifices and concessions in my private life and my personal life to get to where I am professionally. And, you know, this year in particular, being single this year, was very hard because obviously, you know, you're trapped indoors with nothing but your own thoughts and you've got nobody to, to sh I mean, there's friends, obviously, of course, you can call and reach out to, but it's not the same as human contact. It never will be for me. Like Zoom chats are, are, are fine um, in this environment, but I would sooner me and you were sat down in person right now doing this, you know, and I'm sure yeah, you feel the yeah. same as well. <laughs> and, and being single this year has been miserable, man. It's been really rough. And there's been some very dark places that I've gone to in my head this year. Um, 
like I said, if it, if it wasn't for the book and that distraction, that welcome distraction, I don't know where I would be sat today, but I don't think it would be in the sound frame of mind that I'm, you know, in. It would be a very different scenario, I think. You need to have a thing, don't you? I think for people like us, you need to have something that takes you and elevates you in some way. Like for me, it's a podcast. It gives me, it drives me, it gives me something to really do that seems more important than me. Uh, and it, like, I love talking to people and it excites me. So you need to have something like a nine to five, like I have a nine to five job or I'm not work today, um, doesn't do much for me. I need that bit more. And um, sometimes, I guess for me, it needs to be a bit more public. I think I need to be more public and out in front of people makes me feel better. You are right, though. The The trick to getting out of the dark place in your head is exactly that, is by getting out of your own head. Yeah. And and doing doing what we do in this situation, that allows you to get perspective, to shift the axis, to think about a world bigger than yourself, yeah. And what I've really learned this year, which has been an invaluable lesson, and it might not be a, a school of thought or a philosophy that sits well with everybody or that everybody agrees with or could take something positive from. But for me, I learned this year that life is so insane and chaotic and we can't control it. And to try and control it is a, is a fruitless task. Yeah. And for me, I've sort of realized like in 100 years, nobody's going to remember me. So what's going on right now ultimately doesn't matter. And I don't mean in a nihilistic, destructive kind of a way, but if you can look at life in that absurdist kind of removed viewpoint, then you can sort of understand that this is all a ridiculous experience that ultimately means nothing. It really does. Sorry to break it to everybody. Uh, no, but we, no. we ultimately mean absolutely nothing. And so we should just try and enjoy the time that we have here. And I know that's very simplistic and easier said than done sometimes. But that mindset has helped me so much this year of just like in a hundred years, it'll all be done with this period in time will be something that's spoken about, but the individual lives and individual stories will be forgotten. So let's just enjoy them now. Let's make the most of these moments now and live in the moment and be present in the moment and not worry about what's come before and what's coming next and just try and be here today and enjoy the life that we have um, restrictions and, uh, you know, drawbacks and setbacks and all. And that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, it's the, like the Buddhist mindful thing about being present, not worrying about the past, not worrying about the future and being present. And I, 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 what you said there is very, uh, it's something that goes through my head all the time. It's like, actually, very little really matters. As long as you're not hurting anyone, nothing really matters. Because as you say, no one's going to know in 100 years' time. And you could see that. I mean, in the past, I've seen that as a bad, like, you know, what's the point in anything? And There is I'm no like, point. That's the kind of the freedom. Yeah. And you, you've got, you have to run towards that and enjoy that freedom and the beauty of that rather than, oh, well, if there's no point, then I might as well check it out now. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't check out now. There's no point. So enjoy that. Liberate yourself from the shackles, the pressures, the anxieties, the stress, the strain. Just enjoy it or try to at least. That's all we can do is try to enjoy the moment and the day. 
It's funny because I try and explain that concept and I never do it as well as you did then because it always comes down and sounds a bit nihilistic. But actually, I'm meaning the way you said is that we don't need to worry about things. don't need to worry about the shit that we've got, you know. I guess the only difference if you're, is if you're a parent. And yeah, I guess yeah, it's I'm a different parent. story. If you're responsible, you are, are you? Yeah. If, when you're responsible for another life, that's different. But um, specifically for me personally, you know, I don't have any responsibility. And I realized that this year, I was like, man, I've lost all my DJ work. I've lost all my Q&A work. I lost my podcast sponsors. I haven't had a paid gig since March. I've had this book and a bit of advance money there that's helped float me through. My patron community have supported me. But other than that, I've had nothing. And I was like, this is shit. However, what I don't have is a kid to put through school or a mortgage to pay. So I'm so carefree in that sense that I have no purpose or business really being stressed or down and I've tried to remind myself that it's like I'm 35 I live at home with my mum that shit that sucks however I'm not on the street I've got a roof over my head I'm warm I've got food on the table I get to spend quality family time with you know my parents who I love and actually life ain't so bad although it seems like it it is because so much has been taken away you have to try and flip it don't you and look at what you do have and be grateful for that yeah, you kind of have to take things down to basics and it's like, have, do I meet those basic needs? Yes, I do. So shut up. <laughs> like, That's what yeah. this year's been about, isn't it? Just back yeah. to basics, fully. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I've quite liked it because um, I, I quite like being indoors and I like, uh, and it's because I've got two kids, they're like uh, 10 and 13. I like, it's been quite nice that I haven't felt that I've got to constantly be taking them out or doing things like that with them so like I might teach my daughter a bit of guitar or something like that and it's also it's kind of quite nice I quite liked it well that has driven me a bit bonkers and so let's go back a bit then Matt uh so you was about when your mum was having like extreme uh bouts of bipolar so you you were witness to all of that then were you yeah, it's my earliest memories, really, from the age of three, three to four up. So it's it's all I've ever known. You know, I, I have vague, vague, vague recollections of like a, a time before it when everything was blissful and my parents were happy and, you know, life was good. Uh, but for the large part, as soon as I have thoughts and memories formed, they're all, you know, informed by this looming shadow of this horrible disease, which, you know, drove my parents apart. Ultimately it was, I think what made them separate. And yeah, it definitely shaped my childhood in a unique and specific way. Uh, it forces you to grow up yeah. fast, young. Um, you see that the world isn't this kind of beautiful Dagolo place quite early on and that's kind of quite difficult to process and come to terms with and accept um, but the flip side to that is you're acutely aware of other people's plights from a really young age mm. it makes you really sympathetic and empathetic and understanding and sensitive and there's definitely like a, a soft side to my character which I'm proud to have and that all comes from my mum and growing up with that and seeing that you know, people go through real pain in life and it isn't all sunshine and roses. And I can always see, whether it's someone that I know or even just a stranger, I can usually tell from like my spidey senses that yeah. something's not right. And, you know, I'll always try and be there as a friend or a listener 
or a shoulder or somebody just to, you know, give you a couple of quid on the street if I can afford it. It's made, not that I'm trying to say I'm some amazing human being or anything, but it's, it's made me aware of the plight of others for sure. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, it, it lifts your empathy. Like, uh, uh, I'm exactly the same. You know, you see, you kind of pick up if someone's not doing too well and you can go and talk to them. Whereas most other people are just busy plodding along in their lives. I, I certainly get that. I really do. So, what, um, so how old were you when your parents split up? I was 12. 12, oh, you were. I mean, it was, on the one hand, I made the most, I mean, I was a little shit, to be honest with you, mate. And I, t- I took advantage of that situation in the fact that, because we had another sister after my sister Julia who passed away. My parents had another child, Helena, uh, and she was only like two years old or two or three when they divorced. So my dad was the disciplinarian and with him gone and my mum focused largely on, you know, raising this toddler on her own, I was kind of given free reign to go out of the house and, you know, just go off, get off with girls, go drinking you know, getting up to all a life of teenage delinquency and crime. Um, and I loved every second of it. I loved every second of that. For me, when I was out of that house, I was running away from all my problems at home. And it wasn't healthy by any stretch. But I think when you are a kid, you should be allowed to go off the rails. And you should be allowed that time of expression and rebellion. And because I think you figure out for yourself where the line is. Like my dad would, if he found out I'd done anything he didn't like, he'd give me a good old smack, you know, and that was his form of punishment. Whereas I never responded to that. The more he did that, the more I'd want to go away and do more just to anger him because I found myself hating him more and more for the way he behaved towards me and my mum. So I was pushed more towards doing things that, you know, would bring out that effect in him. Because I'd be like, yeah, fuck you. And then as I got older and he wasn't around so much to, to, to discipline me, I sort of realized that I don't want to, I don't want to be nicking stuff. Uh, that doesn't sit right with me anymore. It was funny for a minute, but you know, I'm better than that. And I sort of found my own moral compass through making my own mistakes and crossing that line. And, you know, I got arrested a couple of times and I did a lot of stuff that I'm not proud of. Um, but what I was able to do during that period was, figure out who I was, who I really was deep down, my values, my morals, the kind of person that I wanted to be. And it's funny because I still like, since moving back to my area where I grew up this year when I left London, I run into people who I haven't seen in years, even if it's just in the supermarket or I'll see someone drive past me in the car and they still look at me like, there's that wild kid, you know? And it's funny because I read this well, I don't know whether I read or I heard, but this great Beastie Boys quote. It's maybe in the documentary, the Beastie Boys film. And they're talking about how um, Adam Yauch had been asked by a journalist, like, how do you feel? Do you not feel like a hypocrite as somebody who's trying to lecture the world when this is like the guy who's singing Girls, Girls, Girls? Yeah. And he said, well, I'd rather be a hypocrite than someone who's the same person as I was 20 years ago. And that really, for me, is like the story of my life, is I'm such a different person today as I was when I was a kid. But because a lot of people tapped out of my life and haven't been on this journey with me, they just still think, as everybody does, right? If you bumped into someone you hadn't seen in 20 years, you wouldn't think, oh, I wonder what kind of a man he is now or woman. You just think, I remember what they were like 20 years ago. They were a lunatic. That's just our tendency as human beings is to forget that people evolve and grow over time. But I was very early on just like, this is who I am. This is who I want to be. And I lost myself in really the world of jackass, CKY, Dirty Sanchez, Trigger Happy TV, 
all that stuff that was massive at that time yeah. and, and punk music, they were the things that really inspired me to pick up a video camera and start messing around and doing things which would ultimately lead to where I am now. Um, and ironically, interviewing people like Steve-O and Tom Green and Dom Jolly and the Sanchez boys and all these people for my podcast, like they were the figures with their shows in the late 90s that taught me you can do it for yourself. And that's very much the ethic of my whole podcast and indeed attitude on life in general as a whole. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a bit... I'm nearly 10 years older than you so I was uh when I like I was well into all that stuff as well and I watched I remember it was like uh was it on MTV initially Jackass MTV yeah, yeah. I was I was literally 16 when all that stuff started coming out so I was the exact right age yeah. you know teenage delinquent looking for an outlet for his expression I was never an angry kid despite everything that was going on back home for me it was always like life at home is shit so let's enjoy my periods of time away from the house as much as I possibly can. And obviously that involved, you know, destructive behavior and things which I'm not proud of, but I just wanted to have as much fun as I could without harming too many other people yeah. um, because home was just tough and, and hard. And that's something that I've carried on into life without the same destructive tendencies, unless it's on myself, yeah. but it's like life is for living and we got to have fun and enjoy this thing because otherwise what is the point? I've always had that mindset. Even when I'm down and depressed, it's like, I've got to get out. I've got to put some clothes on. I've got to go outside. I've got to meet up with someone. I need to go on an adventure or experience or do something that's going to change the way I feel. I'm not a wallower. I've never been a wallower that just, you know, stays indoors and lets the, the darkness consume and come in. For me, it's always like, no, we've got to break away from that, get out there and chase something good and make something positive happen. That's good because I'm the complete opposite. I'm a... Hide in bed for a week, being like just crying. Some on. people are just they find it so debilitating, and I completely understand that. Like I run, I run away. That's it's, I'm like a fight or flight guy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I completely understand the people who are the other side of the spectrum who just they find it so debilitating that they literally can't physically drag themselves out of bed. I completely empathise with that. It's, it's tough, man. I, like, I loved all the Jackass stuff and it was weird because there was something, as much as like it's really stupid what they were doing, uh, <laughs> there was a, in a weird way, this kind of had a romance to it. Um, like It was punk rock, man. It was just friends conquering the world. That's yeah, how yeah. I looked at it. It's like a bunch of fucking idiot skateboarders with no other hope other than their camaraderie and their sense of danger and fearlessness. And they really did conquer the world on their own terms. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful story. And that's the story of so many bands. And so often when fame, ego, drugs, and all these other things come into play, it goes south. Yeah. But I've always been impressed by that romantic notion of getting together with your friends starting a gang, whether it's jackass or musical or film-based or comedy troupe-based or whatever it is, and, and taking over the world by not changing. You don't change or make any concessions. You do exactly what you want to do on your own terms, but the world adapts to you. That, for me, has always been like the ultimate fuck you. It's you like know? the perfect thing, isn't it? It's like there's nothing better than that. People doing it for themselves. And even doing it on your own. Like you, to, to the same extent, you, you've done things yourself because there's the bit in your book when you're talking very much about uh 
wanting to be uh, part of a collaborative, you know, like not on your own, but you ended up doing everything on your own. Um, and I felt for that because I used to do this podcast with someone else and now I'm doing it on my own. Uh, and like sometimes there's a bit of me that kind of, you want to turn to someone and go, oh, fucking hell, how amazing is that? Um, but then you don't get the reward in the same way. Now, when you do things for yourself and you do it on your terms, like there's nothing more rewarding than that. It's amazing. Um, yeah, I certainly got that with Jackass. I really did. And so how did you get into, you know, doing writing? How did you get into doing what you do then, Matt? How did that come about? Uh, it all happens really so organically and quite fast. And I, I just lucked out, I think, with right place, right time. Wow. Um, an element of obviously being talented and good and willing to work hard and all that comes into play. Yeah. But it really, I think, was a case of just the stars all aligning. So I'd studied English with film at Exeter University. I'd always had in my head the idea that I wanted to be a writer of some sort. Hunter S. Thompson was always my hero. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why there's a nice nod to Fear and Loathing on the cover to my book. Yeah. And when, when I graduated uni, I really didn't know what I was going to do because, you know, what, well, certainly when you do an arts and humanities degree, you're really just having fun evolving your, your brain. You're obviously going out and partying and doing all that student stuff, which people should do. And I would say it's worth going to university just to do that. Like, forget about the debt. I think everybody who's looking to evolve in life should go away from home for three years and live in that environment where you're being taught, at least on my course, how to critically engage with the world and dissect and analyze and talk about and discuss. All these tools that I learned in seminars throughout those three years of English class absolutely stood me instead for what I'm doing now. And I don't think I'd have the same critical brain and ability to get into discourse with people were it not for those amazing lectures and seminars at Exeter. But after I finished, I was like, well, I haven't been doing work experience. I haven't come out with like a specific training degree that's going to get me into a specific line of work and I'm good to go. It's like, oh, I'm going to be a penniless artist for forever. And, you know, all these years later, I kind of still am. But what happened was I moved back home after a period of living in a nightclub and promoting nights and DJing and really just being like a reckless party person for a year, I moved back home with my mum for the first of many times, it would, it would turn out. And at that time in Birmingham, Kerrang Radio had just launched in Birmingham. It was this brand new station in Birmingham. It was massive. There was all this fanfare. And I wrote into them. And I said, uh, I've you know, been doing a little bit of student radio down in Exeter. I've been a DJ for X amount of years. Uh, you know, I'm interested in broadcasting. I'd love to come in and help out and just do like a work placement week. And it just so happens that my now dear friend, a guy called Henry Evans, who at that time was hosting the evening show, he was looking for a producer at that exact time. And so I went in, met him. We're from the same village. We went to the same school. I knew his brother really well. We had a lot of the same mutual friends. We had a lot of the same just background and experiences, sense of humor, personalities. We clicked. Uh, I did a week with him and he was like, you're the guy. So if you want, you can come and work for me full time, unpaid. Uh, and then basically what we'll do is just as soon as an opportunity or a position comes up, then you're first in line to get it because you're here. And so that's what I did for 10 months, every single day or well, weekday for 10 months. I worked as an unpaid full-time producer on his show. And then I got made 
cover DJ after 10 months. So I was doing like weekend breakfasts. And then whenever a presenter was sick or on holiday, I'd cover their show. So I went from no professional radio experience to being on air in front of, well, not in front of, but, you know, broadcasting to 120, 180, 210,000 people per show. Just like, is this 23, 24-year-old yeah. kid? Completely green. But the, the program director at the time, a guy called James Walsh, he had belief in me. He had faith in me. And he was really great at just giving me those opportunities and believing in me. And Henry was really great at giving me feedback and developing me. And, uh, and then within two or three months of doing the cover DJ work, there was another like lineup shift. And I got given the evening show that I was producing previously. And it was, it was exactly a year to the day after I started out as an intern that I got given the evening show and I was host of that evening show. And because I produced it, I started producing it on my own as well. And kind of from that moment on, really, I've always been self-produced in everything that I've done as well. And so it was literally just a case of 12 months to the day, intern to host of the show. And, and then from there you know, all the other crazy strands of my life evolved and, and spun off. But it was in Kerrang Radio in Birmingham where everything really got going on. And, and that was a period in my life which was like bliss. Yeah. It was like that was my post-grad school, you know. And it, it was just the coolest working environment. Every presenter there was incredible. Amazing not only at being a presenter, but just such a an encouraging, supportive network of people that, you know, were all a little bit older than me. They were all in their 30s when I was in my 20s. So I was like the baby brother of the station. And everybody from Kate Lawler to Johnny Doom to Danielle Perry, everybody who was working at that station at that time really took me under their wing and, and nurtured my talent. And it was just like the most glorious introduction into the industry. And we did, I think I did three and a half years there before the station closed and you know, everything sort of went off FM and onto online only. And, 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 you know, they got rid of loads of people. But for that three and a half year period, it was like bliss. It was incredible. Oh, I imagine having your own show, though. That must have been such a buzz. But yeah, this is my show. Well, it was, I mean, I had complete creative control on the music, so I could play whatever I wanted. I had complete free reign with whatever guests I wanted on the show and whatever. So for a commercial station... The level of freedom that I had was completely unheard of. And you wouldn't get that today. You wouldn't. And, and that was why it was so hard when I lost that job. You know, the only place I could have gone was Radio 1 after Kerrang! that was bigger. And that I didn't have an agent. And I just took the, the news really badly and fell into a big spout of alcoholism. And I dropped off the radar for almost a year. I didn't work. I was just drinking myself to death. Because it was hard, man. I was 27 years old. I'd lost my dream job. I'd also lost my life because I was hosting the evening show. So everything that I was doing socially was orientated around that show. I'd get bands in in the day. I'd interview them. I'd pre-record the last hour of the show at night. I'd go down to their show in Birmingham that evening. I'd hang out with them after the show. I'd take them on bar crawls around Birmingham because I was doing an evening show. I wouldn't need to be into to work until like 2 p.m., the next day. I mean, I could really go in at five or 6 PM if I wanted to, but I didn't want to do any prep, but you know, I obviously, I really cared about the show and wanted to make it amazing. So I'd always do about five hours prep and it was unassisted. So I'd do all that prep every day before the show, but my life was that gig, man, and everything that came with it. And so when that was taken away, it felt like my life was over. And it, that still to this day is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And I dealt with it in the worst way. 
And it was a really hard lesson in like bouncing back and how hard it can be to bounce back. Um, it, that was like the 2013 was the year, even compared to this year, which has been very trying. Yeah. It, that, that was without a doubt the worst year of my life. Because you hit your pinnacle, it's almost like, yeah, you hit the peak. And then it's like, what? whoa, where to now? Like Daniel P. Carter's job, maybe. <laughs> but like, getting into That was it, really. Like, that was literally it. I mean. And Dan's still there now, seven yeah, years yeah. later. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like, there was nowhere for me to go. And it was just, you know, I'd go out in Birmingham and everybody would say, oh, you're the guy that used to be on Kerrang, right? That was it. You, you used to be on Kerrang. What are you doing these days? And I'm like, just fucking drinking in here, man. And they were like, oh, that's depressing. And I was like, yeah. And I became like a ghost in my own life, you know, through my own actions, because I didn't have the, the strength or the, the experience or the maturity to move past that. And I just felt like I'd been clipped in my prime and hard done by, and I dealt with it in a very piss poor, immature way by just drinking myself silly and, and really trying to kill myself. Like the slong, the slow, sorry, long drawn out way that was my pathetic intention that year was to join the 27 club and just drink myself to death because I felt like life was never going to get any better than that. And in many ways it hasn't professionally, you know, I've done loads of amazing things since then and I'm really happy today and I've done some amazing stuff, but in many ways that was like the happiest time of my life. Um, but everything, everybody has those moments, you know, I um I did like ten years of that, ten years of um drinking, um drinking myself, trying to drink myself to death. Really, I think people don't always notice that, do they? They um the idea that and uh, like this kind of comes up with to me, it occurs to me quite regularly, is that, that at those points in my life, I. I didn't have the balls to kill myself, so I was slowly killing myself, like um, drugs. Exactly the same with me, yeah. You ain't got, you can't go that far, but you think so little of yourself and you hate yourself so much that it's like, well, fuck it, I don't care, I'm just going to drink and when I flake out, then I can forget about it. And, then, and that, that is the intention, isn't it? And yeah. I think, you know, if you're a heavy drinker anyway, which I was and, and you know, probably still am, yeah. um, people just think, oh, that's Matt. You know, that's what he does. He's a party yeah. guy. But the problem is, is the party was well and truly over. You know, the party had been over for months and I was still there. You know, that I was living with my friend at the time. I won't say his name because I don't want to make him feel bad in any way. I think he probably did carry some guilt for a while because... I think he felt like he could have done something to stop me, but he couldn't have because I was on that path and I, nobody was getting off it but me. But I was living with him and I remember him coming home one afternoon and he was like trying to wake me up because I was passed out on the sofa and it was the middle of the day and I'd just been up all night. I'd been going all night and all into the next day on my own and all my body was like blotchy all over. You know, I looked like a fucking tomato, like a moldy tomato. And, and he, he, he was like, D like the TV was blaring. It was fucking easy rider. Of course it was like, how cliche can you get? And he was like, mate, you're right. And my whole face was just swollen. And I remember looking in the mirror and he was like, I had to wake you up because I didn't, I thought you died. And I was like, wow. And you know, moments like that is when I should have stopped. But obviously you don't, you keep on going. And I didn't stop until I woke up on some train tracks with a broken spine in Birmingham. Ah. Uh. That's that's where that 
year ended for me on December 15th, 2013. I um, threw myself on some train tracks after three days of hard drinking and no sleep. I don't know to this day whether it was an intentional suicide mission or whether I was just so fucked up and it was an accident. I really don't know. Um, It could have been either. And that for me was the real turning point because obviously then I saw the absolute pain that me taking my life would have caused my family because they had to then spend three months by my bedside every day as I went through conservative treatment and recovery and, and fought to get my spine reconnected and so I could walk again. And it was savage, but that was the worst and the best thing that ever happened to me because it snapped me out of that eight month period of alcoholic destruction. It taught me that there are people in this world who care about me. I thought there wasn't, but there was friends and family and ex-partners and so many amazing people came out of the woodworks and, and came to my side in my hour of need. And it just taught me, like we were talking about earlier, that life could be over tomorrow for all we know it. And it's such a shame to just piss it away and waste it like that. It's disrespectful to the people who care about you. It's disrespectful to yourself. Um, and yeah, man. And that was the most fucking like talk about rock bottom. Yeah. That, that was it. And I found it and I hid it and I broke my back. Um, and, and what was cool was after I got out of hospital in March, so it took me three months of literally just flat on my back. I couldn't even sit up in bed or roll over. And I, you know, when you, when you're in a bed and you've got to ring the bell for a nurse to come along and bring you a little basin so you can shit into it. When you go through that ego goes completely out the window and I've always been a confident person and I have great self-belief in what I do professionally. And I also just believe in myself as a person, but I think that can sometimes be misconstrued as arrogance and people who don't know me think, Oh, that guy's cocky. He's all ego. But I'm like, if you just see me at that point in time, ego goes out the window. Like I was literally, I'd have to be bathed and washed by strangers. And when you go through something like that, there's no ego. It's just you fight and come back from it and you have such determination and belief in yourself because that's what's got you through that you need that. And so when I got out of hospital, I was still in the back brace and everything and I caught a train. So I wanted to get over that fear, first of all, of being weird around train stations. I caught a train. I went down to London. I went for an interview with Classic Rock Magazine and Team Rock Radio and I got the job with Team Rock Radio working on their breakfast show. And with and and then in like April, I was like straight down there working again, like within a month of getting out of hospital because I was like, fuck, I need to get back to doing what I love. Like that gave my life purpose. And without that, I was drinking and I didn't want to live. That's what I need to get back to doing is broadcasting and presenting. And, you know, that's a big part of my identity and who I am. And so I went back in the game and since then have rediscovered like my love for I wouldn't say the industry because there's a lot of bullshit in the industry, but this craft and what we're doing right now, what me and you are doing right now, I live for this shit, dude. It makes you feel good, doesn't it? Uh, Like I I can be having a really bad day. Um, Like I hadn't recorded for about three months and I recorded one the other day with a singer from a band that I really like. And um, I was buzzing and it was like, this is what I like doing, man. Why am I not doing this more often? Uh, Isn't it funny how you can get more intimate sometimes with complete strangers than you can with your oldest and best friends? I've always found that fascinating about interviewing. um, And I almost try and apply 
my interview technique now to friendly relationships and try and actually get real conversations out of people rather than just make small talk and banter. And I think sometimes my friends are a bit like, oh, fucking hell, dude, it feels like I'm being interviewed. And it's like, well, no, I want to connect with you. Yeah, and this, this is how you do it. You've got to reveal yourself and expose yourself. And, and it is funny how some of the conversations I've had with people like yourself have been more intimate and more revealing and more rewarding than like, you know, chats with my oldest and best friends. And that's not to discredit, you know, their importance in my life at all. It's just the nature of this thing. I think because the mics are on and it's a show of sorts, like we're both being authentic and real now but it's yeah. certainly a heightened version of ourselves because you want people tuning in to be you know, engaged and entertained. So it's like you're on, isn't yeah. it? And yeah. there's, a, there's a buzz, obviously, that comes with being on. Um, as I know from DJing and hosting live Q&A events and being on stage, like when you're on and being on the radio, it's a buzz and, and you come down from it. And I quite like, like Paddy Considine's band is called Riding the Low. And that's in reference to like that, the come down that you feel after something like this. I've learned to enjoy those and appreciate those now and not like think, fuck, I need to just stay high, you know, because yeah, that was the thing with doing the radio show. I'm having, like, I've been having therapy every week for nearly three years now and I still cannot ride the low. Like, I'm like, if I, I get excited and I'm like, right, let's do more, 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 let's fucking smash this. And then, and then my therapist always going, like, you're, getting hyper now like you know you need to be able to balance things out a little bit and be happy not doing much and it's like oh, i just can't, i can't ride that low i find it really hard and i, I think uh, i used to play in bands and um like i used like that fueled my drinking because you go and play a gig and there'd be a few thousand and you'd be amazed and then i'd go home uh, and i'd keep going i'd keep drinking and then in the morning I'd have to wake up at a crack of dawn to go and work in a kitchen oh, and, mate. I, and it's like everything. I've done that I've worked in kitchens and bars for many years and, and that world is just as rock and roll as the music uh, business if not more so all the time. I'm like, <laughs> there's nothing like a kitchen full up with like 10 different nationalities everyone's crazy yeah, they're all chain smokers out on their breaks every 20 yeah. minutes having a few bumps and rails to keep yeah. them going smashing pints at the intermittent you know like half-time pit stops it's 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 yeah. a savage chaotic world that is and that can burn you out real fast some yeah. of the best times of my life were working in kitchens and bars before i got into the whole music business thing and i've always had that sort of workman graft approach to to this trade from that trade uh, and, you know, a sense of pride in my work was really instilled in me from being a waiter and a barman and a kitchen porter and, you know, all of these things and like taking pride in delivering great service to customers. You know, that's really where my sense of, of hard work, if you will, um, really began is in that I've got nothing but love for those trades and the people who work in those trades. That's why this year has been particularly for me yeah. double hard is because not only has the live event industry been hit but also the hospitality industry. And they're really the two industries that I care about the most um, and, and that I identify with the most and that define who I am and how I live my life the most. And yeah, I feel for so many people in these trades that have had their careers just ripped away from them because I know, because I've been there, you know, because yeah. I've had that happen to me so many times. I know what that feels like and I can fully sympathize with everybody that's been laid off 
um, you know, or kick to the curb this year because I've had that happen to me so many times. And especially if it's something that you've really worked hard towards. You know, like, if you, you know... And through no fault of your own, you've lost. Yeah. That's the toughest pill to swallow. And again, I've had that so many times. And, you know, you can be just on the cusp of greatness that you've worked all this time towards this moment and everything is about to blow up for you and then, bang, COVID takes it all away. There must be so many people in that boat this year. And they're, having, they're literally having to, however angry or annoyed people feel about the whole rethink, retrain bullshit, a lot of people are just straight up having to have to do that. And that's life. You know, we do have to adapt if we want to survive. Um, but it is heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, it totally is. It's really weird. I, I liked what you said earlier about ego. Um, I, th I think everyone needs to have a point when they're almost free. If like they, they've either had their ego stripped of them or they're able to separate themselves from their ego in some way. How many um, how many stupid things do you do because you feel like someone's wronged you, or uh, you know, basically that? But you know, or you feel like it's beneath you and that kind of thing. When that's all bullshit. That's just you made that up in your head. Um, and I, it's I, only a negative. It's only a negative. It will only hold you back. And when you mix ego with insecurity. Yeah. That's that's the ugliest combination there is. It's like Marcel as Wallace says in Pulp Fiction, man. That's pride fucking with you. Fuck pride. And it really is like throw pride to the fucking ground and get rid of it. You shouldn't be too proud for anything. I think this year has probably taught a lot of people that valuable lesson. Uh, you know, you can never really choose, I think, to shed the ego. It's often you're forced to. And yeah. through being forced to, you then you adjust, you adapt, you see the world in a different way, you see yourself in a different way. And I think you're a better person because of it. I think the best people in life are those that know success and that know failure. Like if you, if you don't know failure, you really don't know what it's like to fall on hard times and, and you really don't know true pain and lucky you. I mean, that's, that's a great position to be in, but I think we can only be the best versions of ourselves when we know great pain and heartache and failure and, and the horrible side of life as well as the good, because then we appreciate the good all the more. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Did you find, well, as being like a a, a failed rock star, me that is. I <laughs> uh, when I, I was going to say I'm a rock star without a guitar. <laughs> failed. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you are. You are very much so. And I, I uh, always, and I still struggle with that. Is that uh, it's like oh, I'm not a rock star bollocks i'm not a rock star and i've struggled with that and i still struggle with it because it's like that's where i should be and then all the time i'm not there then i resent things around me not all the time but you know as a general and um, and then i uh, was lucky enough to talk to people who were rock stars and um and i was really surprised it really kind of put things into perspective for me that like they do live quite normal lives in many ways and it's fraught with insecurities. Uh, you know, when's our next, we need to do another album as good as that album, or we need to, you know, like, oh shit, the support band's actually better than us, and all those little things that are going on. Um, like, that really helped me to recognise that the people you put on a pedestal are actually very similar to you. And we're all... We're, we're all the same, really. Yeah. And it comes... 
every, everybody has relationship dramas and everybody has anxieties and insecurities and everybody has stress uh, and everybody has pain and heartache and loneliness, like all these range of human emotions, they're not taken away the minute you get a bit of money and recognition. You know, if anything, they're intensified. For me, the best rock stars are the ones that just ooze dignity and class and grace, like the Alice Coopers of this world. People like that, for me, are true icons, true rock stars, because they are as famous as it gets. And then you have a conversation with them, and they're just the most grounded, cool, they're interested in you. They're generous with their time and their thoughts. And they're just the most cordial human being you could ever hope to meet. That's a legend right there. Not somebody who's stomping around the place, acting like the most important person in the room. Like the true rock stars don't need to prove that they're important. They just are. And everybody in the room shifts towards their energy, which they put out. And, you know, I've never met Paul McCartney, but I've heard a lot of stories about when he walks in a room He's so aware of his Beatledom fan like fame that he he shifts the energy and he makes a conscious point of making everybody in the room feel at ease. And that's a fucking class act. Somebody yeah. who does that, somebody who's uber famous and just like a huge star, but they get everybody on your level with them. Um, that's you know because that shows awareness of other people and that's such a, a selfless, cool act. And I love people like that. Like when I get to meet and hang out with and spend time with and connect with some of these people, I'm always trying to cherry pick little things from them, whether it's how they treat people or certain attitudes or views that they have. Little nuggets and little things that I can sort of put in my own brain and, and, and backpack, if you will, and uh, you know, try and improve myself and grow myself and learn because if you're being in, like introduced and in the presence of all these amazing people you've got to try and learn from them whilst you whilst you can right it would be like being on a film set with spielberg and not asking exactly. him about certain camera moves or oh what did you do with that scene there how did you achieve that like if you're not look like at least looking and, and watching and analyzing obviously if you get to ask the questions that's even better but if you're not taking note and paying attention then that seems to me like a waste of, of opportunity I, is that not a good metaphor for life, you know? Um, that Amen. We can learn something from the homeless man sitting on the street who will tell us, uh, tell us about our own lives more than we know ourselves. It's like, yeah, we can learn from others all day. We're always learning and we should be open to it. You know? And we can always be better. Amen, man. Yeah, I mean, forget about whether they're famous or not, as you say, whoever it may be. And sometimes those inspirations are found in the most unlikely of places, and then they're even more profound, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find it um, just fascinating. Yeah, you learn so much, and like you, you kind of have this assumption that you know that this is where where it should be. And I think when I was younger, it was. Um, I thought if you became like Dave Grohl, you know, you're top tier, and all your problems are taken away from you. I always kind of thought that. You know, like someone else would look after that. Someone else would look after the kids. Someone else tells you, you just need to go over there now and talk. Yeah. Um, but it's not true, is it? Because as you, like, I like the fact that you said relationships. Life is relationships. Um, and you're still going to have good and bad relationships and difficult relationships. And, you know, no matter what, even if you're just going to buy a drink. Um, and even if you're the most likable guy in the room, you're not going to get on with every guy in that room. Or no, girl. No. You know, you can never get on with everybody because personalities are these weird, unexplainable things. They're compounds of different elements. And you could 
get too like I mean, you could have, and every, everybody has this, right? Let's deal with this as an example. Yeah. Everybody has two friends from different walks of life that you know if you put those two friends together, although they're both friends with you and you have a common, you know, rapport and, and connection and bond with both of them, if you put those two together and stepped away, you know they ain't getting on. Yeah. And that's just the fascinating thing about life for me is you, you shouldn't worry too much if you can't get on with everybody that you meet because you shouldn't. If you get on with everyone, then maybe you're a bit of a boring person and maybe you should kind of take more of a stand on certain issues or do you know what I mean? Because there's always going to be people that you clash with and there's always going to be people that you connect with and there's always going to be people who, you know, you're just not destined to, to be friends with and that's yeah. okay. And, and you can respect and still appreciate who they are. And, you know, I've got many people in my life who I'm like, I don't get on with that person, but I ain't losing sleep over that. And I also know that they're a decent person, essentially. And, you know, I'm not any better than them. We're just different. Yeah. And that's the ego thing again, isn't it? It's like, uh, actually, I'm no better or worse than anyone else. Um, let's fucking forget about the ego. I like uh, it's. And if you did get on with everyone, then you probably weren't being very authentic anyway. You know, exactly. like, are you being yourself or not? And I, for me, it's important to be myself. Like, I've learned that um, for years of hiding my mental health problems. I wasn't myself. And that damaged me. So it's important to be try and be as authentic as you can be. I know you can't in every situation. But, yeah, if you're not being authentic, yeah, you will get on with everyone because you're just paying lip service. And, like, kind of life's not about that either. Yeah, it's like, with, it's like with comedians, isn't it? You know, if, if you're not pissing off anybody with your jokes, then maybe your jokes ain't really saying anything. Yeah, yeah. And I think you should always be, especially if you're, you know, a comic, but I think if you're any form of artist, whether you're a painter or a sculptor or a musician or an actor, uh, or even, dare I say it, doing what we do, you should occasionally alienate the odd person here or there with what you well not alienate but you should perhaps present to them a viewpoint which is different to their own and challenge their own yeah because if we're not challenging each other's viewpoints and opinions then that really is a dangerous world not only a safe and dull one but a dangerous one because then we're really just suppressing and denying and hiding the differences and when those are suppressed and denied then they grow and they you know manifest and they become uglier and and then you have things like brexit and trump and these crazy things that you know sane liberal-minded people are going well where did this come from and it's like well perhaps because you've been telling people for x amount of years what they can and can't say that these perhaps centrist middle of the road people have been leaning more and more right over time because you haven't allowed them their freedom of thought and then now we're in this world where there's like extreme nationalism on the rise everywhere. And that for me really worries me because I think it is a result in some part of people suppressing discourse because they're afraid, well not afraid, but they don't like that the viewpoint that's coming from the other person is different to their own. And yeah. that's fucking dangerous. Yeah. And I think discourse, no matter how potentially offensive, should always be encouraged and always be nurtured. And you should always hang out with people that think differently to you. You know, when people go into, I'm going on a rant here, sorry, no, Dave, but no. when people like go, oh, well, they voted Tory, I'm deleting them from my Facebook. It's like, dude, if you do that, the next time they're voting BNP, 
Do you know what I mean? The point is, is you, you meet someone who thinks different to you. They might be your dearest friend, but they believe in God and you think religion's a, a scam, right? You can still be friends with that person and you can talk to them and they can go, well, here's why I believe in Christianity and this is why I have the faith that I have. And then you can say, well, here's why I don't and why I believe what I believe. And, and then you learn something together and you're both better because of that. And you've both learned and you've both grown. Exactly. And like, you've taken the time to ask them why they feel that way. Uh, and then you can kind of understand things so much better. I've done that a lot with people with different religions. I'm like, tell me about it. You know, like, I'd, I'd love to speak to more different religious factions on my show. I mean, with me, because it's mainly musicians and artists and stuff. I'll just get on controversial people. Well, the world sees as controversial. People like Gene Simmons or John Lydon. There's guests like that that I know a lot of people are like, I hate that prick. I hate everything he stands for. Everything he says offends and annoys me. I'm not interested in anything he's got to say. But then I'll go, well, listen to this episode that I've done with him because I feel like I get some humanity out of them. Yeah. And I, I get them on a level where they reveal them, them tr their selves, their true selves, in a way that perhaps you hadn't seen or thought of before. And I love that if you can call it a challenge i don't think of it as a challenge but i love that challenge because everybody has something that you i believe even the most extreme-minded person there's a level on which you can connect with them yep. it might be food or it might be an interest in a certain sport or whatever it is you might have a similar upbringing or shared history whether it's a familial thing or a geographical thing, there's, I think everybody has a certain level on which you can connect with everybody else. And when you find that and you open that crack a little bit, then there's room for that door then to be open wider. And that's a great way, I think, of looking at the world and, and when you're meeting people who think differently to you. It's like, well, where can, we, where can we meet in the middle? Let's start there. And then perhaps we can agree on a few other things as the conversation continues. Oh, I'll back that up all day long. My... Um... I'm a probation officer by trade. And right. So you know that it ain't as simple as good people are good and bad and it's yeah, all black and white. There's no such thing as good or bad people particularly. Uh, no one's born bad. Um, but I will, like, people will say, are oh, you talking to, you know, someone who, you know, done something terrible to kids? And they're like, how can you talk to them? And I'm like, the same way as I talk to you. Like, underneath take the act out of it there's a reason why and there's a human being um and you, yeah if you can find that little bit of humanity you can get on with anyone like i totally agree it couldn't you know couldn't agree more and it goes back to what we were saying earlier doesn't it of we're all products of our upbringing and our environment and if somebody's doing that to kids then you know that's deplorable and disgusting but the yeah. high likelihood is that they had that done to them and and so we need to look at that as the root of this problem and, and how can we solve that in society? How can we prevent that from happening to other kids? You know, not just let's write this person off and forget about them. Yeah, it's a societal issue. Let's deal with that. Uh, yeah, very, very true. Oh, wow, man. I'm really enjoying chatting with you, man. We've, we've gone over an hour, though. Um, smashed it, mate. We smashed it. Did you get into, I was going to say, a lot of this stuff, so for me, just as a bit of shameless self-promotion, a lot of this more in-depth, philosophical, you know, quite detailed and, and occasionally, dare we say it, profound stuff, these talking points that we're getting into here, there's a chapter in the book called Life and Death in the Stocks, which is towards the end, and for me, that's the one that I feel best represents what I like to do with my show as well. 
Um, I've divided the chapters up, as you've seen, obviously, topically. So there's punk rock and childhood and success and booze and drugs and all these things and creative partnerships, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, but as we get to the end, I really wanted to put in all the stuff where I'm talking about things like depression and suicide and the Me Too movement and, you know, identity politics and all of these things, which you don't generally hear on music based interviews. No on a day-to-day basis. And I like to try and throw them in there with the music stuff, with the rock and roll anecdotal stuff, just so you're getting a bit more of this guest and you're getting a bit more of a, I don't know, um, a shining light on their, their worldview. And, and it makes you hopefully think a little bit more about your own. And it, that was the most fun chapter for me to compile was that one and getting in a lot of this more weighty, serious stuff. Um, because there's, that's why I love podcasts. There's a real place for these tangents, you know, I think when you work in commercial radio or television, time constraints are there, magazines, it's the same thing. You've only got an X amount of words you can get on the page and you're generally promoting a product. So it has to be angled in that way. So there's very little room to really understand more about who these people are. And I think podcasts have been such a revolution in broadcasting in that regard because there's no agenda, there's no script. You just let's roll with the flow, see where we go. And um, these kind of chats are always the ones that I love to have the most. So, it's I, I did. Thank uh, you, I, sir. I talked to uh, uh, Ginger Wildhart, and not at any moment did we talk about music. Not at any like we amazing like an hour and a half, and we didn't talk about music once. I love Ginger. Yeah, he's a great dude. Great yeah. guy. Yeah, I like him. Yeah, we just talked about suicide basically, but it was yeah. like this. Well. When's the books out next month? December 15, available now from all good uh, online retailers. I think it's going to be in Waterstones as well, which will be cool. Uh, but yeah, Amazon, you can find it on there. Uh, you can go to rarebirdlit.com and you can get signed copies on there as well. There's loads of other great books by that publishing house. If you're into rock and punk and metal and, and music uh, and art, then there's, there's lots of titles on there that I'm sure will be of interest. And yeah, it's called Life in the Stocks voracious conversations with musicians and creatives volume one oh, i might add because the plan is to roll out a few more volumes before i die <laughs> yeah you'll get loads out oh, thank you so much man i've really really enjoyed it um, yeah man thank you for a uh, a very stimulating conversation i really enjoyed it as well <laughs> yeah, it, was, right? it, it was nice to go deep i like going deep in the middle of the day as well i feel like i've you know i've taken in a new sort of perspective on the day now and I can go forward with yeah spring in my step so thank you man this is This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 